Hey everybody, this is Kendall from Recording Lounge. This is November 8th. Hope you guys are doing alright. Sorry I haven't done a podcast in a long time. Things have been really crazy. But I promise things will now finally get to pick up again. So I should be doing podcasts once or hopefully twice a month. That would be great. I'd prefer to do twice, but um, we might only get once a month. But uh, a lot of stuff has been going on. I hope you guys have been enjoying the podcast so far. I do have a few shows in the works, actually, that are being uh, outlined and I'm trying to work out some more information and uh, some more cool details and stuff to include and some cool sound clips to let you guys listen to. But um, this week's show is going to be about workflow and about organization of a production. This was inspired from an email I got from a new friend I've made named Steve, and uh, he basically asks... This would be to quote his email. With every project, I learn something out of the process that I try to remember for the next time. I would really enjoy and probably get a lot out of seeing how other people go about the processes of pre-production, direction and focus, order of instruments, and recording. Uh, He goes on to say, especially mixing and staying productive without doing too much. So basically what he's asking is, how do I do what I do? And how do I take a song from nothing, you know, get a band in, say, hey guys, uh, I'm your producer, we're going to record a song from step one to step 20,000 or whatever. How do I do it? Well, uh, I can tell you right now, up front, that it's never the same process every time, as I'm sure everybody who's, who's worked with bands knows, but it does follow a similar pattern. And I find that if I do this pattern, then things usually turn out successful in how I want them. So I'm going to take you guys through it a few steps and let you know how I do what I do. Almost every single project that I do starts with a meeting. The meeting is, to me, one of the most important parts of the entire process. And I'm not just talking about a meeting with one of the members or, you know, with the lead singer or something or on the phone or whatever. I'm talking about an in-person meeting at the studio with the whole band. This is really an important part. I consider this just, you know, chill time. You talk to the band, you meet them, and you say, hey, this is what I'm all about. This is the way I do things. You know, what are you guys about? How are you guys doing? Are you okay? Are you, st- are you stoked about the project? Or do you have worries? Do you have questions? A lot of times what you find is that bands do have questions. For sake of ease, we're just going to assume that the band is recording one song, you know, and I'm going to take you through it. This meeting is all about just getting to know the band. And I'm assuming that you're going to be producing the song. You know, I'm not talking about if you're just engineering or just mixing. Because if you're just doing those things, you're not really here to kind of, you know, play the play the friend in the situation. You're not really here to meet the band. You're here to work. You're here to engineer. You're here to mix. Or you're here to master. But if you're producing, which most of you kind of have to end up to do if you're if you're working for yourself and you just have a studio and you're dealing with, you know, a band comes in and says, I want to record, that implies, oh yeah, well, you are our producer. We don't have our own. We don't have our own mixing engineer. We don't have our own mastering engineer. You're doing it all. Just just talk to the band. Loosen up with them. Make sure that they trust you. If a band doesn't trust the producer, how are they supposed to trust them to make a great song? 
I don't think that that's possible. The musicians have the songs, they've got the talent, they've got the all, all that stuff, and, and the producer is taking nothing, literally silence, and turning it into a song. He's got to record it, he's got to mix it, and he's got to master it, if it's in this situation at least. The producer doesn't always do that, I'm sure you know that, but sometimes the producer doesn't touch a single microphone or fader the entire time. That happens, but I'm talking about if you're the all-in-one producer that does it all. So after the meeting, we have a time where we sit and talk about influences. This is the first stage of pre-production after the meeting. And this is where we actually start to get into the nitty-gritty about the band and like not only who they like and who they listen to, but let's say the song that they're recording. Who does the song sound like? What influences were they trying to draw from when writing the song or when writing the music for the song? Or what do they think about when they're performing the song? You know, have they performed the song at all? Is it so new that they haven't even played it at a show yet? A lot of times I like to have some stuff set up at the studio when they come in so they can play the song for me. So they don't have to bring equipment of their own. They just kind of can play me a rough idea, even if it's just an acoustic guitar or something. You know, I like to have something set up where they can at least play me the song. I think it's super important to hear the songs, especially like listen on their MySpace or on their Facebook pages or on their pure volume accounts or whatever, listen to the band and listen to, okay, well, these are their old recordings. Are they bad? Are they good? Well, hopefully, that'll give you a good idea of their style and of their sound and of their goals. But it's very important to talk to the band. Just get to know them. Talk to them about what they want and what they certainly do not want. So after this meeting about influences, uh, you can kind of have a start, start, start have a rough idea of maybe okay, well, what, what am I going to do for the production? What you know, should I should I try to record the band live? Should I try to record everybody playing at once? Should I try to record them all in the, in, in one room? Um, one thing that I do a whole lot is have the, I have the drums in their own room. Just that's just a smart idea, I think. Have the drums in their own room, but then I'll try to have everybody else in another. Like I'll try to have the three guitarists or the two guitarists and a bass and the keyboard player all in the same room so that they can look at each other and hopefully a window to where they can see the drummer. If not a window, you know, everybody's wearing headphones so they can basically get as close as they can to the drummer. You know, they don't have to necessarily see the drummer, especially if they're recording to a metronome. You know, they're all recording to a metronome. They all have headphones, so it's kind of like they can all hear each other. So they don't really need to see each other theoretically. Benefits of recording live we've already talked about in another show. And so... Uh, if you're curious about that, go go and listen to that. And I really think that recording live in the studio has a lot of good benefits. And it kind of gives you a, an idea of, okay, well, maybe we should record all separately, all individually. It depends a lot of times on their production style. If they want something that's super, super tight, a lot of times like pop music and pop rock music or even stuff like John Mayer sometimes – they will almost always do things individually just because. Now, a big part of Nashville style, which actually might include some of John Mayer's stuff, is to record live because there's so much good separation in a well-treated room that you can have ultimate control over all the amps and the guitars and all that. Another thing is, I mean, I like to have the musicians all in the same room with each other so they can see each other. But not necessarily have their amps in that room. I mean, you can put one amp in one ISO booth and one amp in another ISO booth. 
and uh, the bass going direct, but they're all standing in the same room. So they see each other, but you don't even have to think about bleed problems. Start to think about their influences. Start to think about what they've told you. Talk to them about their concerns, their questions. And then you start getting this idea of, okay, so what approach am I going to take in terms of live or not? You know, ask them about that. Ask them if they feel comfortable playing live. So then we have the first session where the band comes in and they say, okay, here we go. We're about to do this, you know. This is usually where I have the band all set up everything in one room and they just play. They play the song. So I can hear it. I have them play it probably two times, maybe three, however long it takes me. I walk around the room. I kind of listen to the parts. I really listen to what each person's playing. So I try to get a good idea of what's going on. At this point, I can kind of give them some suggestions. I can think about, okay, well, you know, are they really using the right guitars or the right drums or the right bass or whatever? Is it the right tone? Should the bassist be using a pick? Should the guitarists be using single coils? Are the guitars too distorted? Are they not distorted enough? Um, there's, these are a lot of things that you can solve beforehand that will really save you a lot of heartache, especially things like, is the drummer playing the cymbals too loud. A lot of times drummers buy cymbals without thinking about what they're for. Usually bigger cymbals are for live purposes. In the studio, we're often using smaller cymbals. That's not always the case, but I mean, the point is, in the studio, you gotta think differently than live. It is not a live show. Next step that I usually do is record some sort of a scratch track or, or kind of, not, if not that, then set up sort of the bass uh, click melody. Uh, I, I mean that to say, like, in the session I'll put up eight clicks with a cowbell to know that they're all going to start after eight clicks of the cowbell, and then they're all in. If I'm recording live, then I'll have everybody, you know, in one room with headphones, and I'll have the drummer in his own room. Uh, sometimes... So the bassist will be with the drummer just because he's direct, but not always. So I set up all the mics, you know, I, I do all the line checks, that sort of thing. Uh, that sort of thing is really important. We got to make sure that all of the drums sound great. We got to make sure at this point, whenever you're getting sounds, whether or not the drummer is playing the right kit, whether or not he's playing it well, whether or not he can stay to the click. These are really important things. Put up the overheads in the monitors, have him play a little bit, maybe even record a little bit of it and just play back and, and be like, okay, so the cymbals are really loud or whatever. Is that because of my overhead placement or is that because the drummer is just beating the crap out of the cymbals and it's just going to sound terrible? And what can sound equally as terrible is if the drummer is using the wrong, you know, snare drum choice, for example. Like you're listening to the band play this song in the room just before this and you notice that the drummer's using this little tiny piccolo snare, but you know that a 14 by 8 big Slingerland vintage snare would sound way better. This is the time to make that decision. You know, listen to really what's going on. Think about the balance. Balance is a huge part of mixing and recording and production. And a lot of balance comes from things like the arrangement, how the drummer is playing the drums, just as small as something like that, or even as small as. You know, what pedal is the guitarist using? Is that pedal too fizzy? Is that distortion too fizzy? Is it the right kind of distortion for the song? You know, is this the right amp? Is this the right all, you know what I mean? It's all important. You can save yourself so much trouble 
by looking at things. These things are, are seriously important. Instrument choice, amp choice, mic placement, obviously, that's a big one. Um, and the arrangement of the instruments and the and, and the way that they go together. And you can get even more specific, like I said, on a drum set with how each drum is played. You know, if they're playing the drums loud and the cymbals loud, the cymbals might just completely drown out the drums and just sound like this big wash, just terrible. So really take note of those things. Arrangement and performance, I mean, they're just so much more important than than having all the other gear first. It just really is. A lot of guitarists, and really any musician for that matter, play down when they can hear themselves too much. They, you know, when they hear themselves coming through the headphones, they can hear themselves great. And so they play quieter. And a lot of guitarists might hold back in the studio or, or bassists don't play as heavy. You know, you got to tell the musicians, play it like you mean it. Just think about the dynamics that are appropriate, you know? If you're playing in a folk song or something like Fleet Foxes or or, or, or The Shins or something like that, maybe they don't need to play, play as loud. But again, if you're working with an experienced band, they should probably already know this stuff. But I'm telling you because if they don't know it, think about it and try to help them with it. Try to help them with the dynamics. Unfortunately, there's this problem in the studio where... For example, a band is really fantastic. The producer doesn't necessarily have to do a whole lot. But when the band is terrible, the producer might have to do a ton. But the problem lies in the fact that it's not necessarily the producer's job to play guitar. And you have this strange proportionality problem where it's like, well, the producer can really only do so much. I mean, it still comes back to the band. Once you've kind of worked through these issues and you're getting sounds of everything, you know, uh, I usually record a few takes during this process. You know, I say, okay, go ahead and play the song. Just have them play the song, record everything at once. Let's say you're doing everything at once. Even if you're not going to record everything at once in the long run, try to do this maybe. Set up all the drum mics or something, put up a few mics on the, on the guitars or, or, you know, and, and try to record it so you can listen back. Listen back to the whole thing, almost like the entire performance scratch track all at once. Just listen back. Have the band listen to it. Think about what's going on. Do a few little quick mix decisions, you know, pan the toms and pan the overheads and maybe pan the guitars. And if the vocalist is doing a, a scratch vocal, you know, make sure that's up and, and audible for everyone to hear. Sometimes I do a little quick mix here and just kind of give people a rough idea. Okay, you know, how's everything sounding? In a mixed situation, how how is this all all working out? And I, and I I listen to them, I talk to them, I ask their feedback, and talk to them like, okay, what's going through your head? Is it is it sounding okay? And sometimes they'll say like, well, you know, maybe we should turn the click faster, or maybe we should. I don't I don't like the guitar sound, or I don't I think the drum part needs to be different. Sometimes they'll have these things. If not. Think about it yourself. Does it sound too slow? Does it sound like it's lagging? Does it sound like the drummer and the bassist are not playing tight together or, or whatever? Does it sound like all these, you know, these things really matter. Um, if you knock out the big things, guitar tones and bass tones and drum tones, you know, tune the drums 
I can't tell you how many times I've worked with drummers that actually don't know how to tune drums. And I mean, tuning drums is a make or break thing. It really, really is. A lot of people don't realize that, but tuning the drums is a make or break factor in the drum sound. You know, tune, get the right snare, use the right snare, you know? Listen to the sound of the song that they just recorded. Does the snare sound too fat? Does it sound too bright? Does it not have enough crack? You know, is that because of the drum or is that because of the way they're hitting it? Or is that because of your mic placement? These are quick decisions you have to get used to making and, 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 and assessing. When you're debating about, you know, why does this sound bad? Let's say this something sounds bad. You know, you're listening back and something sounds wrong. Really, I would question your placement of mic before I would question the type of mic or the quality of the mic. Uh, I think the placement has a lot more to do with it, especially in, if not the placement, then check the room. If it's even in a good room, I mean, if you're recording in a studio, hopefully the rooms are great, but who knows? So once you've recorded a take of the whole song, once you've kind of gone through it all, the band is happy with the clicks, that, you know, because that's something you can't really change easily later. Make sure the band is happy with the tones of, that they're getting. Make sure the band is happy. That's a big thing. Check that, you know. Don't just push that by the wayside. If the band's happiness has a lot to do with the success. If they start to get worried that the song is not going to turn out, if they're worried that the drums aren't sounding right, then that can hinder the entire session. You know, that can hinder the entire month that you're working on the album if you're doing that. If they're worried, reassure them. Reassure them. Talk to them. Answer questions. Make sure you're, you, you look at them and actually like say, what do you think? You know, it's simple. It takes two seconds. What do you think? What's, what's going through your head right now? And don't be afraid if they criticize you. Don't be afraid. It happens, and it's great that they do. If they actually can come up with a legitimate criticism, you know, kudos to them. Kudos to them for speaking out. I, I, I applaud bands that do that because it's basically like they're saying, I have a definite opinion, and I'm going with it, and I want you to act on it. I think that's great. I think it's a, a very wise musical step of them to take. So once uh, you know, once the recording process happens, let's say we're doing it individually now, right? Let's say we're doing the song individually. If I had to go about the song like recording order, almost always, almost always, I have some something for the for the drummer to go off of. So that's usually a scratch of maybe the lead vocalist and acoustic guitar. Let's say I have the drums record. You know, I go all out and record the drums by themselves. I make sure the drummer's happy. I make sure the tones are right. I make sure that, you know, it, let's say we did the scratch tracks earlier. I'm, I, I'm thinking, okay, are the drums we're recording really matching up with kind of the ideas that we had then? So I usually do drums. Uh, almost all the time after that, I do bass. Sometimes I do bass and guitars at the same time, but I really like to do bass right after drums. Sometimes I prefer to do bass with drums, you know, bassist in the control room with me going direct and then the drummer in the in the live room, uh, that's often very very helpful, especially when you you're, you know you're getting that bass kick drum uh, sort of chemistry that that sort of interlocked sound. It's really really important in rock music. You can really get that if they're recording at the same time. And also you know if you have a an acoustic guitar scratch track and a vocal, 
it's really hard for a drummer to get into that. If you have a big blaring bass guitar in the in the drummer's ears and guitar scratches of the leads and everything, they like that. They like playing to something solid and sustained like that. Drums are such a huge part of a rock sound. It's really difficult for drummers to just play to You know what I mean? It, 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 it's just boring. It really is. Um, it's just hard for drummers to play to that. They want to play to a song. They really, they, they do. I do. I mean, I'm not necessarily a drummer, but I would love to play to a song if I was recording. I don't want to just play to a click, you know, or, or like a click in an acoustic guitar. I don't want to do that. I want to play with the whole band. I want it, I want it to be fun. That's, that's part of drumming, you know, that whole vibe of playing with the band is part of being a drummer. After that, I usually do guitars and, you know, like drums are a big part, you know, that, that's a big part of the session. That takes a long time to do. Setting up and tearing down for drum sessions, it takes forever. There comes time for a whole lot of different techniques when it comes to drums. Switching out snares, you know, is this snare better for this song? Is this snare better for this song? Should I use different cymbals on this song? Should I not, you know, should I use smaller hi-hats on this song? Things like that happen. Should I, you know, tape up the snare drum, dampen it a little more? Should I dampen the toms? Should I not dampen the toms? So I move on to guitars after I do drums and bass. I make sure that the guitarist has new strings. That's just essential. Bassist having new strings is pretty important too. That that actually makes a big difference. Just like the drummer having new heads. I mean, you want to create the best case scenario. You really do. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the whole point of what we're doing here? What you listening are hopefully trying to do? Showcase the band at their best. You know, isn't that the job description? And a lot of professional bands that are touring these days replace their strings before every show and replace the drum heads. Not necessarily before every show, just because it's just, it, you really don't need to. But, you know, once a month, once a week sometimes. Uh, replacing guitar strings before the session. I'm not talking about just before the recording. I'm talking about f before each song. Even if it's the same song and you go back to do different lead parts another day, I do new strings every guitar session. I just do. It's, they sound great when they're new. Have the guitarist play for a little while, 30 minutes, break in the strings, pull them out from the, you know what I mean? Pull out, pull out the strings, stretch them a little bit. And don't worry about the tuning, because it'll probably stay in tune after you play for a little while. So you do the guitars, you make sure that the guitarist plays it well, plays well to the click. You know, you do layers, you do all these cool things. And again, make sure that the guitarist and the band is happy. How do you choose, you know, when you're done, when you're done recording guitars? You know, you record the drums, you record the bass, you record the guitars. Are you done? Are you done recording the guitars? I recorded a left left electric and a right electric, and then I recorded a clean electric in the bridge. Am I am I done? That's something that usually comes with time of doing this. You know, you're you're working with bands and you're you're dealing with more differences in production and things like that. You really just have to develop an ear for it. What's right for this song? Do you need more guitars in the chorus? You know, do you want to add a different guitar part in the chorus? Do you want to add layers? Do you want to have no layers? Do you want it to be more raw? Do you want it to sound more live? Those are those are important considerations. 
the good thing is, if you're not on a super ridiculous time crunch, you can always come back and add more guitars. So, at this point, I usually do the guitars that you need. I usually do the guitars that maybe I hear initially that sound good. I do the lead guitars, rhythm guitars, I do all that stuff. I try to, I try to change it up a little bit, make things interesting. Um, if the guitarist is sort of like fumbling and he seems like he's uh, having a hard time playing the parts, I usually have him take a break. Have him take a break. You know, don't touch the guitar. Don't let him play his guitar in the break. Have him sit, talk. Talk about something else. Get his mind off of it. A lot of guitarists will just sit and piddle around on the guitar. Not only does that wear the strings, it also makes the guitar fall out of tune. And it also, you know, makes their fingers more tired. Don't let them play in the breaks. That's a big deal. Musicians have this idea that taking a break is just playing what they want. And that's not a necess- that's not a break at all. That's wearing yourself out more. And you know, I mean, I'm a musician too. I know exactly what this is like. You're in a cool studio and you've got your guitar and everything set up. What are you going to do? You're there to play. So you play, but it's different. Uh, so don't let them piddle. Don't let them little noodle around the guitars while they're while they're just chilling out, you know. This happens a lot more for lead guitarists. They're having a hard time like playing the solo that they're really wanting to play. And that happens, you know, to have them do a few takes of it and they're like, man, I'm frustrated. Then stop. Don't make the studio process annoying. Don't make the studio process like just this terrible, just tumultuous, just like, oh my gosh, I hate this. I hate this. I'm so, I'm so miserable. I can't play my part. I'm screwing up so much. I'm embarrassed. Don't, don't let them do that. Don't let it get to that. And be like, hey, listen, you know, we'll move on to something else and come back to this. Then comes the terrible, terrible horrible situation of debating vocals, vocal recording. Oh no. What now? So producing vocals, producing a vocalist with a vocalist, you know what I mean? is one of the most difficult things that I've found in recording modern music. Every vocalist is different. It is impossible to really predict how they will act it's impossible to know how they're going to react to all the little changes, like uh, how loud is their voice in their headphones? How loud is the click in the headphones? Is it loud at all? Is it even on? What do they want in their headphone mix? How close do they stand to the mic? Do they know how to work the mic right? Do they know how to you know, back up from the mic when they sing loud and get close when they're singing really quiet and soft? Do they do that? And I know I've said this before, and I know you've probably heard interviews with the golden ears of our time and heard them say the same thing. Having a good band with musicians that are talented, with good instruments, and they're playing an awesome song is really more than 50% of the whole thing. And I mean, with vocals, there's so many details about this, you know. How do they hold their their neck, you know? Do they look upward when they sing? Do they kind of look down and sing downward? Um, generally I find it better if a singer can sing a little bit up because it kind of opens up their throat a little bit and allows the air to come through a little better. Uh, so, so put the mic just a little bit high and make, you know, angle it 15 degrees, I don't know, 20 degrees, not, not much. Don't make it, but just having it flat is sometimes hard and having it downward can sometimes be bad. Um, choosing the right mic is a big deal. I usually set up about five or six mics, uh, large diaphragm condensers, large diaphragm valve condensers. You know, I've got AKGs and I've got uh, hand, some hand-built mics. I've got some, like, 
uh, boutique sort of things. And I've got some old standbys like an SM57 and an SM7 and an RE20. Great mics for vocals, especially male rock vocals. Um, and the RE20 is also great on female vocals. I love the SM7. I love SM58s. I mean, those things are not uncommon in the studio. Sometimes if you're using a mic like an SM58 with a great preamp, the singer is actually more comfortable and works the mic better, sings into it more like they would live. You know, they, they see it because they see it live all the time. I mean, every venue's got an SM58. They see that mic, and so it gets them in the mode like, oh, this is just like I'm playing live. You know, oh, okay, I'm just singing. It's no big deal. Another part of it is like the lighting in the room and the temperature in the room. And, you know, can you see them? Is it one of those deals where you have a window and you can see the singer? Having a comfortable singer is actually a really important part of the production process. And, uh, you know, having, having a singer that is not scared is actually pretty darn important. You don't want a singer that comes in and is like, man, I'm afraid my vocal's going to suck. Now, a lot of singers sadly think that. They, they come in and they're like, yeah, uh, that probably wasn't that good. That doesn't sound that good. And some of them take it kind of lighthearted, but others don't. I mean, they're really nervous and they really think, I'm going to ruin this song. It is my voice that's going to ruin this recording. I am going to be the downfall of this band. My career is over. Singers are, are a different monster, you know what I mean? They, they really are. They're not like a guitarist or a drummer especially. They're not like a bassist. They're, singers are really somebody that you should do. I prefer to do the vocal session one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have the band here. I prefer not to have the band here. I say, I want the singer only. I will say that sometimes, in very rare occasions, does it actually help the singer if the band is there? One occasion I can think of this is when you're with like a rock or metal or like kind of really intense vocal band. As long as the band is supportive, it can really be helpful. For example, a singer goes in and sings a part and he comes back in the control room and the band's like, oh man, that was so good that you nailed it, you hit it, you hit it totally perfect. The notes were perfect. Then that really encourages the singer to hear it from people that he knows to hear it from the band that he plays with all the time. But if you're in a situation where, you know, you're in a rock band where the vocals are more, you know, maybe it's more like a country rock band, it might not be as beneficial to have the, to have the other members there. Maybe by working with them enough at this point, you kind of realize who's the jokester, you know, who makes the jokes? Like, uh, does the drummer kind of poke fun at the singer? Does the, do they kind of make fun of each other? Because even if they're doing it in, uh, in sort of a jocular sort of manner, like they're, they're just kind of kidding around, you really got to realize that sometimes that stuff cuts. Sometimes the jokes, the little jokes here and there about the singer's pitch actually do upset the singer. They actually do make the singer nervous and be like, you know, I know he's just kidding around, but maybe he really means that. Maybe he, maybe my voice really isn't on pitch that much. Maybe I really am sucking it up. These people are artists. They are not just regular everyday people on the street. They are artists. One thing I try to remind the vocalist of is that the emotion is far more important than the pitch in most cases. To have a vocal performance that's meaningful and that sounds like they mean the lyric, you know, to sa it sounds like they're not just lying 
you know, emotion is a big deal. You want a performance that's going to say, I mean this song with all that I am, and I am, I am just singing my heart out. If you have a singer that's just kind of like, oh, no, 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 you know, and sing the song like, like I ask them to sing it right now. Just like, hey, why don't you sing a song for me? An inexperienced singer will treat that moment like, oh, I'm just singing a song. An experienced singer will treat every opportunity to sing like they're on TV. The best singers I've worked with, the best, most professional, act, you know, like sort of minded singers, professional minded singers, if you say, hey, go ahead and sing the lyrics to that, that part really quick, they sing it like they're recording. I mean, they sing it like they stand up straight. They, they sing it like they're on TV, you know? As cheesy as that might sound, it's really uh, sort of an image of professionalism when you see that. When you see a musician or a vocalist treat every opportunity to play like it's the real deal, that's when you know they take it seriously. So be mindful. Be mindful of how they act. Be mindful of the rest of the band. Really think about the environment. Really think about the conditions. Think about how the singer's feeling. Is the singer tired? You know, is the singer exhausted? Is he worried? Those things are free. You know what I mean? Like they don't cost anything to ask the singer those questions. They don't cost anything. It, it, it doesn't cost anything to t sit and talk to the singer about his worries or concerns. You're not going to get an amazing performance out of a vocalist by having an $11,000 microphone. You're going to get an amazing performance out of a vocalist by making sure that he knows how to do it and by making sure that he's comfortable enough, ready enough, willing enough, and confident enough to do it. Now, there's a lot of times when the song is recorded and you're listening back and the vocals are done, let's say, and you're thinking, man, there really needs some... It really needs to be some new parts. It really needs to be some stuff added. This is the infamous overdub session. This is uh, the most common, most commonly comprised of things like uh, tambourine and shaker and extra percussion instruments and uh, perhaps little piano parts or things done on bell kits or uh, extra little sounds that you're adding here and there, backing vocals uh, that you forgot to add during the vocal sessions or whatever. Here is also the good, a good time to add any extra guitar parts that you want. Uh, you can always mute them in mixing. Don't worry about having too many. This is the digital age, you know? Record it. If you think it sounds pretty cool, record it. Don't be like, oh, no, that doesn't sound too great, or I'm not sure. Keep it, and then if you don't want it, mute it later, you know? On to the mixing stage. You know, you've done all your you've done all your uh, overdubs. You kind of you kind of take it as it comes. Think about the song. You know what I mean. Think about it. What do you want to add? What might sound good? And like I said, don't be afraid. It's the digital age. You can always remove it later. And this is how I would advise you to start your mixes: turning all your faders down, just sitting in silence for a few seconds, and turning them all up listening to the song. Adjust your volumes and your pans. Don't sit there and touch an EQ. Don't do any of that. Don't do any of that. You know, don't adjust any of that stuff first. Sit there and adjust volumes and pans. 
Sometimes I'll adjust uh, my master fader, you know, with a with a compressor or whatever I want to add on the master. Um, and then sometimes I'll start doing things in groups, like uh, you know, create some group channels and put like the drums to a group, and then like uh, the acoustic guitars to a group, and then the backing vocals to a stereo group, and then uh, keep the you know keep the lead vocal mono or whatever, but. Uh, like uh, maybe the piano and the synth, uh, or the synth and like the uh, the different synth parts. Maybe put them to a group, uh, or the electric guitars put them to a group. I don't. I, I haven't touched EQ or compression or any of that yet. I just do the groups. You know what I mean? Um, then what I prefer to do is set up my effects, my reverbs, my sends, my delays, all that stuff, and. Uh, and sometimes I'll add some reverb to things. I still haven't touched EQ or compression yet. I run through the song probably five or ten times this way. You know what I mean? Just going through it, setting the balances with pans and, and maybe adding some reverb to things, maybe adding some delay to things. Um, because because reverb and delay are space. You know, they add space. They add realism. So sometimes all you need is a little bit of reverb. Sometimes you don't need, uh, sometimes you don't need compression or EQ on something. What I do after that is I usually go through and and add some basic EQ. This is usually things like filters, like like high pass filters, like on the vocals, and uh, you know things like overheads or guitars or something that really doesn't need all of these low frequencies in a dense rock mix. Uh, it seems like most of the stuff under 100 hertz is like kick and bass, and that's it. And uh, you know some some of the guitars and some of the toms and maybe some piano, but that's pretty much it. So I go through and do basic EQ, nothing fancy, nothing really corrective, just uh, just simple filters. You know, like maybe add a little bit of top end and you know filter out some of the low frequencies. And I just do the almost the minimum that you can think of doing. From there, I just continue to mix. I add compression, I add EQ. I change things up. Now, now keep in mind that this is a mix. It's not just a random collection of tracks playing at the same time. This is a mix. You know, don't worry necessarily about things like, oh, well, this guitar sounds great in solo, but it sounds terrible in the mix. Of course, it's a mix. It's not a guitar in solo. Sometimes you have to adjust. Sometimes you have to add an EQ on something that doesn't necessarily sound the best in solo, but in the mix, it sounds perfect. Uh, you got to consider that you can add an EQ to something in, let's say, the first five minutes of, mix, of the mix, you add an EQ to uh, to a guitar, take off some top end. Then later you're like, man, that guitar is a little dark. I'm going to add some top end. Well, you have two plugins on that you don't even need. You could have just not had any of them, and the plugin that took off high end could be canceled off, and the plugin that added high end could be canceled off, and maybe just dry is fine. I find that if you spend more time with your mic placement and your preamp choices and and your amp choices and your drum choices and all these things, if you spend just a little bit more time doing that and really focus on the song at hand, you often don't have to do much to instruments, especially in terms of EQ. Uh, compression has become a pretty common thing in rock music, but EQ... You don't have to use it on guitars if you do it right. And I find that um, a lot of the time I'm just doing simple filters, you know, little filter here and there, take off some low end, maybe take down some low mids or whatever, 
nothing super fancy. I'm not I'm not trying to get anything crazy and uh, I can if I need to or if I feel like it sounds good, but generally I don't have to. In terms of keeping perspective in the mix, you want to make sure that you don't just go off on a tangent and mix how you just feel like mixing. Like, oh, this song reminds me of this song. I'm going to mix it like that. It's not that song. You know, it's not songs by ACDC or by uh, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> you know, it's not. Even if it sounds like a culmination of them, even if it sounds exactly like some random weird collaboration of Stevie Wonder and ACDC, it is not Stevie Wonder and ACDC. It's this band, you know? It is this new project. You don't want to sit there and be like, man, you don't want to listen back to that and be like, man, that sounds just like an ACDC mix. You know, if you're mixing a band called, let's say, uh, John's Band, you want people to listen back later and be like, man, I want my mixes to sound like John's Band. I don't want them to sound like ACDC. I want them to sound like John's Band. That's that's the sort of perspective you have to take. You know, some per- some people might be like, wow, that's that's pretty arrogant of you, Kendall. Why, why would you suggest that your listeners do that. But I really don't think it's arrogance. I mean, I think you should aspire to have mixes that people will one day covet. It's a sort of confidence that you have to have in yourself or you're not going to try things. You're not going to be inventive. You're going to be reserved. And in this business, nobody really ever got anywhere by doing the same thing that everybody else has ever done. Most of the most famous recordings, most of the most famous performers got the way they were because they did something different, you know? And that's in almost any business, really. There's a fantastic book called Outliers that talks about some of the richest and most successful people in the world, and the way they got the way they were was because they were an outlier. They did something different. You know, prime example is Bill Gates or Sam Walton. And getting back to the topic at hand, don't tell me for a second that recording quality has nothing to do with album sales. I, I I would beg to differ. I, I think it strongly does. I think, sure, there are albums that don't necessarily sound great, especially like a lot of indie stuff, that sell very well. But the average listener doesn't know how to describe the differences. They, they listen to something and they're like, wow, that sounds good or that sounds bad. That's all they know how to say. They don't know how to say, man, he really should have chose a different snare for that song. All they know is it sounds good and bad. So... When you're mixing, you have to understand that. This is not about the snare drum anymore. This is about the mix. While you're recording and while you're doing all that production, it's about all the details. But when you're mixing, you know, you focus on the details for sure. You focus on the details individually. You focus on them in the whole. You focus on them in the group. You know, you listen to the snare and solo and listen to it with the drums. But it's still a mix, you know. I am using the solo buttons just so much less than I used to. I don't need to. You know, I listen to the mix. I listen to it as a whole. And I add EQ and change EQ uh, in the mix, not in solo. Because, like I said, the people aren't listening to the snare drum. They're listening to the mix. You gotta, you, you have to mix the song. I usually take breaks uh, when I'm mixing. I try to take about a break every single hour. And the break is usually about 10 minutes. So usually what that means is I mix for 50 minutes and take a 10-minute break. Um, 
if I'm mixing that long, you know, if I'm just going to knock out a whole song from start to finish in one day, um, everything, you know, mixed completely, you know, I make sure to do that. It's really important. Ears can get tired. They really can. Uh, I think it's important to have a good set of monitors. I think there are a lot of good companies that make great monitors like Focal and Barefoot and, you know, there's some really nice ones that aren't even... There's a ton of brands out there. I love. I use Focal monitors and I love them. I think they're fantastic. Um, I don't. My ears don't really get tired even after mixing for a few hours. Now, if I'm mi- if I'm mixing loud, uh, that that can be a problem. I rarely mix loud. Uh, I I try not to mix too quiet. There's this whole thing called the Fletcher Munson curve that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of in certain ways. The Fletcher Munson curve just deals with basically the idea that mixing and listening to music or whatever at 84 decibels is the prime uh, you know, money spot where your ears hear the correct balance of highs and lows. There's one producer I know of that actually sits at his desk with an SPL meter and makes sure that he's mixing at 84 decibels. He sets his reference level and mixes at 84 decibels. It works for him, you know? You can't just sit there and say, oh, well, most people are going to be listening to this genre pretty loud, so I should be mixing loud. It might work. It really might. And if that's the way that you work best, don't change it. But sometimes you're mixing something and you have this set idea and you're like, wow, you know, this, uh, this really needs to be done this way. Stop and think about it for a second. Ask yourself why. Always question yourself. You're not always right, you know. You're just not. I'm not right. Heck, I, I get stuff wrong all the time. This is just, again, i got to restate. This is just the way I do things. This is the way I view things. I want to hear your opinions on these things. You know, I, I, I'm speaking it in an active voice saying, do this, do this, do this, because that's how, if I were to explain my methods, that's, that's what I'm doing, you know. So uh, I, I try not to mix too loud. I try, I try to mix at a good volume. I try to mix at something that is a little bit, perhaps lower than what I would mix, like maybe preferably, like what I would prefer to listen at, uh, I mix just a little below that. Why? Because I feel like if it sounds big and punchy when I'm mixing pretty quiet, then it'll probably sound incredible when I turn it up loud. It's definitely something you should test. But uh, generally, if, if, if I'm mixing like a rock song and it sounds just big and awesome and full, when I turn down the speakers, not that quiet, you know what I mean? Like, not like I'm struggling to hear it, but just like uh, decent listening volume uh, where somebody could be in the room and you could talk over it. Not yell over it, but talk over it. You couldn't whisper over it, but uh, this, I, I, like to, I like to gauge that and, and say, okay, if this sounds good like this, it'll probably sound fantastic when I turn it up. And every now and then, I suggest turning it up. Pump it it up, you know, listen to it big. It's important to listen to it big. Sometimes you can turn it up from mixing quiet and it's just muddy, just muddy as heck. Determine if that is your room, if that's your ear fatigue, if that's your speakers, or if that's your mix. Sometimes you have an untreated mixing room or a poorly treated mixing room and you can turn something up and it's just all the reflections in the room make it sound crazy. Sometimes it's just your mixing. I try to make sure that while I'm mixing, I really try to 
not lose perspective on what the band wants and what the song is appropriately calling for in terms of like things that I'll try, you know, weird effects that I might try. I like to keep it interesting. I don't like to do the same things every time. Like I said, not many people get famous or popular or in this industry especially by doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. It's okay to take risks. It's okay to be different. It's encouraged in the in this business and that's one reason I still love the recording industry because it does encourage being different. It does encourage doing this. Now, do the famous artists on the radio always do do something different? No. But we also can see how long they last. They last about a month. And bands like uh, ACDC or Led Zeppelin or um, even newer bands like Coldplay or U2 or Muse, they do things differently and they continually get better and do things differently and they're still popular. And a lot of the rap artists or whatever that you see, they stay popular for about a month. Why? Because they're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing and people get tired of it. It's like, okay, you're doing exactly what like most deaf or ludicrous or like some decently respected, well-respected rappers that have been doing it for a long time. You're just cheating off of them. Why should I listen to your new music, your new music, you know? It doesn't make any sense. I try to make sure that in my mix, I am always challenging myself. I'm always doing something new. I'm always doing something different. I'm always trying. It, it takes five seconds to completely undo a change. You know what I mean? It's, it's really no big deal. If you try something and you're sitting there just like, man, that just sounds bad, then undo it. I always try to here, – here's a weird kind of side note. If I'm mixing and I have I have different sets of speakers, I have I have uh, four different sets of speakers that I mix with. Um, my Focal monitors, my mains, I mix on those most of the time. I have a boombox, like a old Sony boombox that actually has a decent sound. It's it's you know it's got two four inch speakers, so I mean it, it doesn't have just a super weak low end. It's got a decent amount of low end. I have that off to my left. Um, I have a an iPod dock off to my right. And I have a set of tiny computer speakers um, right in front of me, underneath, uh, like kind of just like a few feet away. And uh, I, I switch between all of them. And uh, when I do switch to another set, I try to stop the song. When I switch to another set of speakers, I stop the song and just let my ears kind of stop for a second. I read this on a, uh, on a post by uh, Sl Slipperman who was talking about when you mix, you know, if you're going to change to a set of tiny speakers or something, just stop for a second. Let your ears adjust and get used to silence. Silence is always your control. Your ears can adjust to silence, kind of like when you are uh, sitting in a dark room and then you pull up the uh, you pull up the curtains and you can see the light of day and it blinds you and, and the whole room is just like, oh my gosh, it's crazy in here. And you wait for a little bit and your eyes adjust. Another situation is like when you're in daylight all day and then you walk into a dark room and your eyes have to adjust so you can't see anything. It's just the same thing. You know, it doesn't take that long, but sit there, just stop the music. Can you really not spare 15 seconds? I'm pretty sure you can. When you switch back to another set, do the same thing. Really is no big deal. I make sure to check my mixes on different speakers. I make sure to check my mixes in the car. I make sure to check my mixes just about anywhere I can. 
on a laptop, that's an interesting test. Uh, transferring it over like on a USB drive over to the uh, over to the laptop and just listening to it on the laptop speakers. Um, sometimes it's actually pretty revealing. Sometimes you'll listen to it and be like, holy crap, the guitars are just overwhelmingly loud. I, I can't hear a single thing. If it's something dramatic, make sure to listen to another mix of a professionally mixed, you know, high dollar project. Be like, okay, this is my control for my experiment. Like, okay, here's a really fantastic recording by, you know, whoever. And uh, how does this stack up to mine? Chances are theirs is going to sound incredible everywhere. And that's the point. That's one of the reasons it's a professional production because it was mixed and mastered correctly and very, not necessarily correctly, but appropriately. Keep your, keep your brain focused on the mix, the idea behind the mix. Keep your brain focused on what do they want, you know? And, and it's little things like sometimes a band wants it to sound like a studio recording and sometimes they want it to almost sound like a live recording that plays into how much reverb and delay you add. You know, when you add more reverbs and delays, you're kind of changing the entire mood. You're making it surreal. Bands didn't, re you know, bands rarely get a chance to play in a hall, you know what I mean? But you can add a hall reverb to something. So it's like, well, uh, this is surreal. It's not something they do every day. It's just almost impossible. You know, I mean, it just, especially a lot of the delay effects that you have, they're, they're literally impossible to recreate in, in the physical life that we live. I mean, you can't just stand at, uh, like like digital delays that are stereo and they you know ping pong between left and right that's just impossible to do and and time them you know what i mean that just doesn't happen so keep in mind what you're adding keep in mind how much delay and how much reverb and all this you're adding i don't advise um being too hard on yourself about how it sounds compared to another mix because you know you're working with this band and you it's a learning process. You're working on a song, let's say, and you're kind of debating, okay, where do I go now? Where do I go from here? What do I do? Is this sounding right? Is this is this mix sounding good? How does it even sound compared to another mix that I've done? How does it sound to a professionally done mix? It's not about that. Don't worry about that yet. Don't I mean don't obviously shut it out. Don't be like if your if your mix sounds bad, then fix it, you know what I mean? But if but if the mix sounds good to you, don't worry about it. If the mix sounds good, don't worry. Does it sound as good as this song? As good as this band? Because it's not that song and it's not that band. I would say that's about what I do. When it comes to the mastering process, that's an entire different thing, you know. And I could go in plenty more detail about the mixing process. I could go in plenty more I mean I I could write books and books about it. And the key is you have to know what the band wants. You have to know how your ideas play into it. The band obviously came to you because they think that you are going to bring something to their music that they couldn't do on their own or that they need you to kind of help produce the sound that they're hearing in their head. That's essentially the job description. So they're basically saying, you know, do, do what you do. Don't hold back. And that's what I'm saying, you know? All these things in, in, really matter. Like I've said, the little details add up. It's not just a joke. It's not just like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. 
The little details like that matter. So keep this in mind. Hopefully this has helped you. Steve, hopefully this has helped you. I'm glad for your question. Thank you for emailing that about uh, all those details. I hope this has kind of given you an interesting perspective on what I do. I hope all my listeners out there have heard this and hopefully had ideas of their own. I hope you start to think more a little bit about each of the process, you know, each of the different processes that go into making a song. I hope you start to question your own methods. It's good to do that. It's healthy. And best of all, like I said, it's free. Why not sit and think about that? It's better than sitting and worrying about how much more money you need to spend on microphones and how much money you need to spend on preamps and room treatment and, oh, no, 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 I have to get a brand new studio. Oh, my gosh, my studio is terrible. In reality, if you adjust your techniques and just continually focus on getting better, like I've said before, you cannot get time back. You can't get time back. And so invest in time, you know? Invest your time into this. Learn about it. Read about it. Try it. Do it. Record, you know, mix and, and, and mix again. It's a continual learning process. You can always get better. You can – very rarely can you get worse, honestly. That's a good thing to look forward to. You can always get better. There's always room for improvement in mic technique. Your ears are always learning. And, you know, we have incredible ears and we can always kind of upgrade them, you know. I mean our ears get tighter, more refined and we start to really hone in on, oh, so that's the sound that I really want. And you start to think about that, especially after you've mixed a few songs. You think, well, what did I do to that guitar last time? Well, it had a little too much mid-range or it had too much high end. So next time, really think about that when you record it. Think, well, you know, it sounds good, but maybe for this song, it actually needs a little less mid-range or a little more high end from step one. That, that means from the amp or from the guitar choice. It all comes back around. It's all interrelated. And it's all the real deal. I mean, this is, like I said, this is not a joke. It's not just like some thing where all these producers are sitting around blabbing about, rant. oh, yeah, I moved the mic a quarter of an inch. It's, re it's the real deal. It really is that specific. And it really does take time. So if you're not perfect at it, welcome to the club. You know, we're all learning. That's why the podcast exists. So I hope you have enjoyed yourself. I hope I have given you some good ideas. I will talk to you guys soon. There should be a podcast up in the next two to three weeks uh, that I've been working on for a little while. Hope you guys have enjoyed. Thank you very much. If you have questions, please email them at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also check out the blog at recordinglounge.blogspot.com. And, you know, I don't update that a whole lot, but I try to. So... Please email me any questions you've got and uh, just keep me updated.